0: And if I'm able to point, let's say, to the number of threats that have been detected and circumvented, if I'm able to clearly show where vulnerabilities still exist and then I'm able to articulate the value that remediating those vulnerabilities can bring to the organization, then I'm able to answer the question, are we secure? From Exabeam,
1: this is the new CISO, a show about the people who lead IT security teams, the challenges they face, and how they overcome them. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe to hear our new episodes first. I'm Steve Moore, and today I'm back with one of my favorite CISOs, Tyler Farrar, who's CISO at Exabeam. Tyler walks us through his SOC philosophy, which is extremely important, and outlines the critical steps to success in an age of exploding data, compromised credential-based attacks, and alert fatigue. So, why are malware-free attacks so successful? How can security analysts make their effort more meaningful? And what capabilities do you need to answer the age-old question, how secure are we? Hello, everyone. I'm, I'm going to allow our guest to introduce himself, but I want to kind of do a little bit different of an intro. Our guest today is somebody that I have immense respect for. Uh, he's someone that I I knew briefly prior, and now I'm proud to say that he's the CISO of uh, Exabeam. We often get to work together on different projects, research, and presentations, and I always enjoy working with him. and I'm glad that he can spend some more time with us today to cover several topics. So, Tyler, welcome again. And if you would, maybe just do a quick introduction for those if they may have missed your earlier show.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot, Steve. Great to be back on the show. My name is Tyler Farrar. I'm the Chief Information Security Officer here at Exabeam. I focus both on enterprise cybersecurity and, and product security. Prior to that, I worked at Maxar Technologies, and I was a customer of Exabeam. And I ran security operations and infrastructure governance and cyber assurance. I used to work at KPMG as well and consulted on various initiatives around next-gen security operations and vulnerability management. And prior to that, I was a naval officer, worked in cryptologic warfare, and managed multiple projects and operations within U.S. Cyber Command.
1: Cool. Thank you for that. Um, I was going to make up something that you had something to do with tracking aliens or Unidentified craft or something. But I always end up messing with Tyler in some way, and I probably shouldn't. But anyway, today we're going to talk about several things. One is sort of sock philosophy. Tyler and I had a chance to co present recently on this, and I think that's really important to talk about and share. We're not ready to release it yet, but there's been some research that he and I are working together on with others, kind of some interesting early findings there that are kind of head scratchers that we thought we'd spend some time on. And then kind of how all of what you heard in the intro and the role that Tyler has and the aforementioned kind of affect the way we think about even our own internal processes and product and even our product release that we had recently. So that's kind of what you can expect, kind of all bundled together. I think where I'd like to start, Tyler, is in our presentation we gave a while back. I think that one of the things we should spend a little bit of time on is just the perspective of adversary behavior versus defender's behavior. Maybe you could give just an intro into that. I think a lot of people talk about, you know, sort of criminal adversary or nation state adversary, but they don't think enough about their defender's behavior. Maybe you could spend a second on that as to why is that important or why should you even be thinking about it?
0: Yeah, there's a couple of different perspectives that we here at Exabeme take around this. And as you mentioned, it's aligning to Adversary behavior, number one, and defender behavior, number two. And aligning to adversary behavior is a very common thought process for most security operations teams. This is building out your use cases around examples like compromised credentials or phishing or malware. You're creating your dashboards. You're reporting on anomalies. You are technically and and, and realistically looking at threat actor TTPs, tactics, techniques, and procedures, and searching for indicators of compromise. It's a very common way of thinking about how a security operations center is ran. However, that's only a, a component of this. And the other perspective that we at Exabeme take is around aligning to defender behavior. So this is not only of on how you organize yourself within your security operations team, and more importantly, your information security team. But it's also around having your defenders, having a a comprehensive understanding of the business, of implemented use cases, and finally, really balancing, truly balancing incident response and crisis management with prevention. Spend a second on that.
1: The balance there, I think is worth noting. I think many organizations, and we've seen some of this in some of our research, are very prevention heavy, which isn't necessarily wrong. But what is the insight there that you would give when trying to find the balance? What do you mean by that? How do you know if you're too far one direction or the other? Because we haven't defined it. What do you balance it with? You know, If you're not thinking about prevention, then should you balance against that?
0: Right. The big piece of prevention that we see today and how we think about prevention are through tools and vulnerability management. So I'll give you one example would be your endpoint detection and response or a firewall. These are preventative tools that are used from a process perspective, like I mentioned, conducting vulnerability management and patching holes in your organization are preventative techniques. However, what happens when the threat actor utilizes legitimate credentials, right? They compromise credentials. How is one able then to uh, detect that type of activity? And that's really where the balance with prevention comes in is around the ability to detect this type of activity and respond to that activity. And I think There still needs to be a a focus on prevention and certainly an investment in prevention. What's really missing, though, is the ability to detect preventative behavior. One example being an individual within the company accidentally pushes a misconfiguration, opens a bucket to the world. These are actions that are taken by a legitimate individual within the company that are not malicious in nature. However, have the ability to create extraordinary risk to the company should that essential vulnerability be exploited in the future.
1: So I think that with that, or the important piece to think about is that not all of what your SOC is attempting to detect and manage and help prevent, not all of it's going to come through on a signature, and some of the actions are going to be done by credentialed individuals that are allowed via proper entitlement to perform these tasks. So then the question is, how then do you, A, detect that and then B, manage the sort of the blast radius of that problem in an ongoing way? I see a lot of organizations that even if they attempt to find that balance, the analytic function, the SOC, the security team have trouble and they struggle with sort of making environmental changes after an incident, meaning to sort of further harden. It's an element of prevention, but it's it's a derivative of incident response. You know, I have spent a lot of time talking about this. Like, unpack that a little bit for us or give us your take on that. Sort of, how does response become prevention? Maybe in another way as a product of incident management.
0: Really around being able to detect Activity detect behavior that is related to the techniques that or controls that have been put in place from a preventative perspective. So the example here again being, if somebody just in, within the company makes an ordinary, unintentional mistake that could lead to something like a, a vulnerability exploitation in the future or a security breach. That is utilizing a preventative control. However, you are using detective methods to identify that that preventative control is no longer either in place or effective. And I think that's really the key there is the ability to detect where preventative controls are ineffective or have failed.
1: So we could spend hours on on a lot of this. There's so much I want to cover, but I know that we're not going to have time for all of it. We internally talk about an efficacy gap and internally we would, you know, we're we're focused in the space of sim and and analytic and response solution, TDIR space. But I would say that there's a security team or a SOC efficacy gap. There's certainly been a sim efficacy gap. There's sort of this delta between what the defender is able to do and what they need to do. If you were going to list out kind of a, a number of pillars of ingredients that you think a sock should have. This isn't necessarily tied to any specific product, although we spend our time on our product. What should they have? Like, what should they have from avoiding the problems of a lot of legacy solutions and avoiding sort of the gaps in analytics? What's Tyler's sort of list of of where you should start or, or maybe the, the, the direction you should aim for?
0: Uh, that's a great question. Okay, so The gap that you mentioned is really a mismatch between what the security operations team needs and what the SIM product is delivering. And if we double-click down into what the mismatch is, I would bubble it into three areas, three fundamental challenges that every company that we speak with has. And those three areas are number one, just the overall volume of data that is exploding, right? Number two, the entire cyber process is manual, and security operations teams cannot keep up with it. The solution today is to just throw bodies at the problem. And then number three is that the attacker techniques haven't changed, but most products cannot detect these techniques. So to boil down what Security professional needs it's the ability to have log management and scale log management, control and manage their own data. It's the ability to detect behavioral analytics, detect these attacker techniques. And number three, it's the ability to conduct an automated or as much as automation as possible an investigation into that detection
1: where do you think so those are three pretty big pillars where do you think most organizations trip up the most right is it and it's going to be different for everyone but you speak to a lot of security teams and you're responsible for one uh, yourself is it the fact that there's a large volume of data is the fact that people are still doing things in a manual way or is it that the attacker techniques still sort of evade or allow for evasion of what people typically have installed or the processes that they attempt to sort of enact against those techniques? If you could force rank them, are they all sort of equal?
0: I think there's a little bit of force ranking here. I think there are two that really bubble up to the top. Number one is many security operations teams are still using legacy solutions in general legacy tools that are unable to either utilize cloud scalability. And furthermore, and most importantly, most importantly here is the lack of log management, the lack of ability for a security team to manage and control the data that they're responsible, that they're charged to protect. But equally as important is that the failure of a legacy SIM solution having the ability to detect the number one cause of data security breaches, which is compromised credentials. That
1: gets mentioned often and I think it's misunderstood. And I'll cite two publications that I put a lot of credence into. There's CrowdStrike and Verizon. If you don't read the reports, I'd highly suggest downloading them. The Verizon report's been out a couple of months. The CrowdStrike threat hunting report has just been out just a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks by the time you hear this. But effectively malware free attacks are on the rise. And it's somewhere between, I think it was 72 or 74%, are sort of malware free. And that's credential-based attacks, which I find, yeah, 71% are malware free. Now you have to split is that initial access or persistence, and, and this is initial access, but where do we miss the mark? I have my own opinions, but yours are more important here. Why are we missing the mark on this? These attacks are successful. Why are they? I mean, it's, 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 it's an issue with capabilities in the sim, but even a level above that, like how should the CISO think about this differently or what should they be thinking about? Like there's ingredients in the sim for sure. And we'll get into those, but what are we missing? What do we not understand?
0: It's the constant cat and mouse game that security defenders play with security attackers. And anybody, right? This kind of the laws of the universe is the path of least resistance. And so any individual, any attacker is gonna utilize the path of least resistance. So to sum up an answer to your question, the reason why this technique is used, which is around compromised credentials used, is because it's easy. It's easy to do. It's easy to procure credentials, and there's so many different ways in order to obtain or procure those credentials. And so where we're missing the mark is the inability or, or I should say use of legacy SIM solutions that are unable to detect this behavior, to baseline normal behavior, to detect abnormal behavior on credentials, and thus compromised credentials become the major root cause of nearly every major cyber breach we've seen these last few years. It's interesting.
1: I just had the CISO of BlackBerry on for a second time, and he talked about the importance of understanding normal and abnormal, how important that is to him, and Steve's his name. He, he is a brilliant man, but I found it fascinating that he was so quick to come to that, like understanding. Because it's an analytic question and answer that you have when you're trying to figure out anything. Even if you get on an outage call, forget about security for a second. People are chasing the wrong things, trying to identify the source of a problem. If you have a production system down, you're looking at errors. And one of the very first questions is, well, is this normal? Or does this person, is it normal for this person to do this or not based on their job class? You know, how do they rate against their peers? You know, And so it's a very expensive question to answer. And so being able to have that, that capability, especially in your SOC is hugely important. Back on the credentials, I think you're completely correct. It's not only are they available, but they work. I'm just surprised at how often they work, like how often they're utilized and how successful they are. And I think getting back to your balance statement, that's where the detection and analytics and response Beyond prevention needs to be, I think the scales need to be adjusted a little bit, at least in the minds of, of the defender. I don't know if you have another thought on that or
0: anything else you'd add. Yeah, maybe just to add it and utilize it as an example. So you're following best practices with respect to account management. You're utilizing strong passwords. You're utilizing and have implemented multi-factor authentication. All of those are preventative techniques and preventative controls and tools used. However, like we just mentioned, the attackers are still successful in compromising these credentials, even with controls like multi-factor. So to your point, Steve, why? And because it's still easy to do. It's still easy to leverage the susceptibility of a human being and to have them give away their credentials through things like... Phishing emails, right? It's still easy to find a disgruntled employee who is willing to give up their credentials, maybe for a price or maybe even for free. That's the issue. And even with those preventative controls, if you don't have the ability then to detect when the behavior of the account, of the compromised account changes from what the normal is, then that's how and why security breaches are happening. I can definitively
1: say, and I'll tell you, in my external facing role, I generally don't talk about our direct product. It's more about the themes that we reinforce or what the executive should be thinking about. But in this example, and I think it's one of the things that we're best at is understanding that very thing, the use of the credential in an attack chain and. A big piece of that is not only context, but also understanding abnormal behavior. That was a need that is ultimately brought me into this side of the world, first as a customer, then an advisor, and now an employee. But I still think that's lost. I think many leaders would say, Hey, I have multi factor. I don't need this. I have, you know, MFA, some sort of capability. I hear this often. And yet we still see these issues, whether it's from a misconfiguration with an MFA, whether it's some sort of new PIN mode from a token, whether that's theft of the credential or the token, it just continually works. And I think that the need of the capability needs to be on the list of, I wouldn't want to be a defender and lack it. No matter what you buy, it's absolutely necessary to have. I can't enforce that or stress that enough. Internally, we talk about, and, and this is I'm phrasing it this way just so my guest understands what I'm getting at. We talk about new scale, which you mentioned elements of earlier. But spend a second on if you were going to make a list of requirements for a CISO, you know, we were new scale Sam, but no matter what you're sort of shopping for, what does that ingredient list make up according to Tyler? What's the mandatory pieces if you need your platform to work and process and analyze, and respond. If you were to outline the high points to that, what would your sort of ingredients list be if you were shopping for something or, or evaluating your current process? that To Tyler, that would be what five or six things?
0: I would require that this platform possesses the ability to securely ingest data, collect a new log source from anywhere whether that be on-prem or a cloud-based, the ability to securely ingest that is number one, from anywhere. Number two is then the ability to parse, effectively parse that information upon ingest, so as quickly as possible. The third piece is then the ability to store all of this information, again, securely, And then the fifth and final piece is the ability to search across all of this information quickly with a modernized search and visualization capability. And part of that visualization capability, you need to be able to have visibility into overall data ingestion metrics, right? How much is coming in? If we say, if we reference the x platform for a minute, how many events per second are coming in? How am I in relation to my overall license? And what's the overall health of the platform? Has some log source stopped working? I want to know that. I want to know that immediately. So I want that visibility into the platform itself.
1: I want to pivot for a second for the listener. We also talked about different methods that I think align with this very well. But methods of what I call thinking as it relates to identifying bad stuff you know you you just outlined what we would kind of our new scale elements which i think are important and you know fast searches are certainly you know getting being able to not only process ingest but also bring back data uh, where you're not waiting for it i've had to do that myself and the process of that so making use of all of what you just described there's different lenses there's three in fact the first would be sort of a risk lens Walk us through what you mean. Well, first off, maybe what are the three? And then let's spend a second on each of the three, kind of what you mean of those. Again, we're sort of building a, a requirements list, but really getting into kind of the philosophy of how you would design a sock, really. So, what are the three methods? And then let's unpack each.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think to start off, before we dive deep into the lenses, the two major questions that we are attempting to answer by putting these lenses on are, what is the ability or how quickly can I detect something abnormal in my environment? And number two is, how quickly or how effective am I in the ability to then determine that that abnormal thing, that abnormal behavior is bad?
1: Thank you for cleaning that up for me. That's actually a question that we had. Some of the research I was talking about earlier that we asked this directly, and that's a great way to sort of frame it. So just because it's anomalous doesn't necessarily mean bad. It's still probably of interest. But then if you can identify the anomaly or the anomalous, then sort of the classification of it. So thanks for helping me there. Yeah. Continue, please.
0: Sure. So the lenses that you're referencing, Steve, there's like we said, there's three. The first lens is taking this risk lens or being able to conduct risk assessments across the organization to evaluate the overall security posture of the organization and then identify gaps, whether that be gaps with credentials and credential-based issues that could be a risk to a high-value asset or an individual. But once that risk assessment is completed risk response is required to then identify what the corrective action plan is going to be and then execute. Number two is around an event lens. And this is where the alerts, let's say from your sim, are driving some sort of security analyst action. So one example could be around, again, compromised credentials. We see that there's unsanctioned Okta or your unsanctioned MFA push attempts somebody is trying to compromise credentials. Maybe it could be around a malware outbreak and we're seeing indications of ransomware. It's an event that is generated and it's driving a security analyst to some sort of action. Finally, the third lens is around hunt, so the hunt lens. And this is where security analysts are actually searching iteratively through the network to identify or detect indicators of compromise an attacker tactics techniques and procedures and it's all based upon either some event that may be taking out in the wild may be taking place out in the wild or some level of hypothesis and that's where a lot of the ability to search like i mentioned earlier and search quickly and iteratively across massive amounts of data is very important
1: so i like breaking that apart because i in a lot of the conversations i'm in this gets back kind of into the religion or the philosophy of the SOC and how operationally leaders should think about how their staff is spending their time and how good are they at sort of attacking these problems from these three methods? Because they're all equally important, but they all need sort of structure as well. And so sort of uh, spending time on the definition is, and the attributes is really important. I think that's helpful for the listener to think about their programs in that regard to say, most of which are just sort of stuck probably in an, inside an event lens, sort of alerts, and then sort of trying to grab onto an alert and figure that out. But thinking about risk, you know, the benefit of risk is the business thinks in terms of risk. And that's one of the things that if you're understanding normal and abnormal and rolling up sort of maybe it could be a numerical point total. Which is what we do, but just thinking in terms of collection of the abnormal behaviors in line of an attack, how do the assets in my environment, humans included, how does that rank? How's the deviation from the norm? So, the philosophy of this, I think, is very important. Every process is going to be a little different, but how can you attack these problems? And more importantly, getting into my next topic is how does it affect the analyst, the quality of life of the analyst. So if there's a rotation between these three lenses, working towards sort of the preservation of staff and the development of the staff is incredibly important. I mentioned again, I mentioned new scale before, but there's sort of these pillars. Tyler mentioned many of them. In fact, I think he covered all of them, but it's sort of you know cloud native and this sort of hyperscale breadth and depth two things I'm going to call out, I'll come back to is the experience to the analyst. We talked about behavior. We talked about it being sort of a full picture, but then the meaningful work experience. Those are sort of the, the two things I want to focus on, meaningful work and the experience of the investigation. Anyone who's had to do this type of work in the past, you know, some of a it may not get any more advanced than Notepad or Excel. So, Tyler, if you could spend just a second on why is the experience of the investigation or maybe even the element of meaningful work and automation keeping you from chasing noise and that kind of thing? Why is that important? How do you ensure that that happens? How do you leverage or actually influence that within your team and our product?
0: Yeah, we talked just now about how we can utilize these three lenses. And what's more important is how these three lenses can be used for evaluating success of the SOC. When we talk about more from a non-technical perspective and really around the security analyst, him or herself, we can think about and know that an unproductive or a stressed SOC really places a even a larger target on a company's back, it could lead to loss of your talented workers. Clearly, we're already in a competitive sector or competitive industry, which thus can lead to potential loss of business due to a data breach-driven attack or the damage done reputationally from that. So it's really important that SOC leadership carefully track the happiness and career fulfillment of their staff, knowing that this tidal wave of of cybercrime and of, of nation-state attacks, et cetera, are not going to die down anytime soon. So when we look at these lenses to evaluate success, I think it's important to go back to what you mentioned earlier, Steve, around our ability I should say our ability to answer those expensive questions and those questions really revolve around the who what where when why and how and if we're able to leverage technology to automate not just the the response uh, and a lot of people get hung up on that around soar not just incident response but the entire investigation allowing a tool to enable the security analyst to give them Answers to the expensive questions that thus allows them to do more meaningful work, to use their mind to run actual analysis of the threat. And like I mentioned earlier, number one, determine whether there is an anomaly. And number two, whether the anomaly is bad. If we can enable the security analyst to answer those two major questions quickly and effectively and move on to the next thing, and more importantly, focus on what is actually bad, not a false positive, that's how you could see a result with more meaningful work for the security analyst.
1: One of the things that we have coming up, uh, I guess one of the things that any security team must do is sort of match the development of, let me phrase it a slightly different way, making sure they get the most out of the platforms they use. And sometimes that comes in the form of a major release So there's an upgrade you do and you have, you know, whether that's whatever legacy platform or however you do your security work, but it's making sure that you're getting the value out of the dollar you're spending. And we just had a big release come out. You are not only a sort of an influencer and sort of a design partner internally as an internal customer, but you're also a customer operationally. And so as this new stuff gets rolled out, capabilities It's sort of incumbent on you to make sure you make use of that as well. That's a really long way of saying highest and best use, which is actually a real estate term, but there's new opportunity. So stay updated with your platforms and make best use of that. Pursuant to all of that, I'm not sure I introduced that all that well, but pursuant to it, there's some new stuff coming out. And a lot of it revolves around metrics, reporting, visualizations, which I'm very keen on. I love a picture. Anything in particular on the horizon for you here that, that you're sort of excited or, or working on in that space to make use of with the new release?
0: Absolutely. I think the biggest thing that I am looking forward to is around Outcomes Navigator. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about Outcomes Navigator here in a moment. But to walk this back of why, it's because all of us, especially as a CISO, are consistently and constantly asked by somebody within our organization, perhaps the board of directors, the question or a related question, are we secure? Or how secure are we? And it's a very, very generic, high level question. And there's no one right answer, but there could be a best answer. And we have to really think about how we answer that. And how I think about how I answer that is to be able to tell the story on what key controls do we have in place to protect our key assets from our key adversaries. And if I'm able to point, let's say, to the number of threats that have been detected and circumvented, if I'm able to clearly show where vulnerabilities still exist, and then I'm able to articulate the value that remediating those vulnerabilities can bring to the organization, then I'm able to answer the question, are we secure? So Outcomes Navigator is a huge value add because it provides that other part of the detection and prevention uh, balance that we discussed earlier on this podcast. I have a very easy way to show what preventative controls and investments we've made. In the organization and how effective they may or may not be, but on a detective perspective, I'd love to be able to show our board of directors or our CEO, et cetera, what our detective capabilities and more importantly across a baseline. And in this case, what Exabeam uses is the MITRE ATT&CK framework to be able to show uh, what gaps or lack thereof we have um, across every single threat actor tactic, technique, and procedure out there.
1: So that's really important. I I think that leveraging other really good frameworks to sort of create heat maps to visualize coverage is really the net net of what you described. And I'm proud that we've added this. I think a good visual can make the difference in a meeting to say, look, we either have coverage or we don't, or, you know, your cooperation means we now have coverage or all the money you just gave us. Here's a picture of how good we are. That is so powerful. And so to have something that's incumbent, no matter what you use, but we're talking about in this example, our platform, to have that as a, as a visual not only has technical merit, but has leadership and business merit, which is what I, I enjoy even more. So is there anything else before? Because I have another item on MITRE, but anything else that you want to mention before we move on?
0: I think the big thing, above all, Of what we talked about here, the ability to create a culture of communication where a security leader and their team can speak openly and candidly about the security capabilities that the organization has, or more importantly, where it lacks, and really confidently hold decision makers to account it's very important. It's it's probably the big key takeaway here that we haven't directly touched on this morning. However, it's really important when it comes to creation of an overall culture of risk awareness across the organization.
1: Excellent, excellent point. I want to talk a second about something that actually CrowdStrike did related to MITRE. So they also use MITRE Attack Framework, but they overlay real attack information on top of it. And we spent a lot of time on credential. And to kind of reinforce that, they actually did a heat map, which I think is interesting. And I'd just like to get your opinion on this. It's pretty amazing. So there's sort of 12 columns over the top of MITRE. And then the middle, there's persistence, privilege escalation, defense evasion, and then the access of the credential itself. And every one of those, if you were to do a heat map, it all involves valid accounts. Like far and away, bright red heat map. It gets back into that 71% that we talked about before. Actually, sorry, initial access, execution, persistence, and escalation. I actually remember this. I had to do a talk the other day, and I tried to remember it, and I flubbed it now, but um, it's I P E E, right? So does any of this surprise you when these evasion and collection techniques, and how would you use this to sort of show if you're sort of trying to prove to somebody that this is an issue, right? How do you take the information you have today if you don't have Outcomes Navigator, if you don't have, if you're not using MITRE, how do you sort of go through and prove that this is, an, in fact, an issue and probably an issue in your environment? Like, how do you begin to make that argument without the tool set already, without, if you've not already done it? What techniques would you use to get your environment in line so then you could make the justification to ask for budget to get this kind of stuff? Is there a process that Tyler would go through if he had not? How would you go through and use something like this, maybe like this heat map for MITRE?
0: I think it's through implementation of an overall and common metrics model that is really important for any security leader to implement. And that starts with being able to gather the relevant cyber evidence. In this case, if you don't have the capabilities to map yourself to something like MITRE and and the areas or techniques, I should say, that you just mentioned, Steve. Then try pulling out what's the underlying uh, pieces of those techniques or the vectors that are utilized to in when leveraging those techniques. So a couple of examples could be: we know that there are going to be brute force password attempts. There should be controls in place to prevent that. Right? We talked about prevention. Can we pull metrics to show that this is consistently happening? Can we match that or pair that with metrics around how many MFA push attempts are happening that are unsolicited? Can we bring those together? Can we report on the overall number of phishing campaigns seen over the last month and how many of those were related to attempting to compromise credentials? So you can gather evidence that I call it cyber evidence from multiple areas, multiple preventative control areas that you've implemented to bring them together to still tell the story of why if any of these things are successful, these are when these techniques are going to play out. And so you, you need to then transform that evidence into the business risk. And that's number two, when you're thinking about implementing a metrics model. So how can you transform the evidence that in some of the examples I just provided into a way that's understood from a business perspective and how it poses risk to the business. And then finally, number three, being able to report to the board or to leadership, not only providing them where you see there's assurance, you can provide them reasonable assurance, but also highlighting these gaps. And so that's how I would tell that story, gathering other areas of cyber evidence and transforming that into business risk, and then highlighting those gaps to management.
1: I've got one more question
0: to ask.
1: I'm going to say it just for fun, but we're going to modify it some. It's generally, pursuant to the name of the show, the new CISO, what does being a new CISO mean to you? Tyler's already answered that. So I'm going to ask instead that he leaves us with some added sock philosophy. We talk a lot about that. But what's the highest level sort of SOC philosophy? What's the top of your Maslow's pyramid of SOC philosophy there? What's the idea that you would leave your team with most if being asked for guidance on that? Where do you start?
0: Be aligned with your adversaries and how they think and act and be aligned with your defenders and how they think and act. And if you can embrace both that adversarial and defender alignment, you will have the power to shift your organization in a profound way and to create that culture of risk awareness, create that culture where security is a shared responsibility and is embraced by everybody. So creating a culture of empowerment, not only through encouraging critical and a creative and a proactive SOC but by also helping the rest of the organization steer clear of threats, particularly specifically to credentials and data, and ultimately their reputation, is most important. Tyler had no idea I was going to ask that.
1: So he did have a chance to prepare a little bit, though, because we wrote an article on adversarial alignment. I don't know. We can put a link tying to that when we publish the show. Tyler, thank you so much for being on the show once again. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. That is it for this episode of the new CISO. Thank you for listening. Check out more episodes on xbeam.com forward slash podcast. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to get brand new episodes first.